Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, stop me if you've heard this before, but we're talking about FIFA and corruption. My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, I feel like that could be the introduction to 10 or 15 of the podcasts we've done so far. Maybe, maybe more than that. I can't even remember. But this has been one of the singular recurring themes in the existence of our podcast. Yeah, I mean, this is basically just an episode about conspiracies. And like, if you, I always think back, I'm like, where did we, where did we start? And our very first episode was about the lead up in 2020 to the World Cup in Qatar in 2022. And here we are with what we'll get into is another 10 years of nonsense ahead of us as we move toward perhaps an even more corrupt bidding process that has led to the awarding of the 2034 World Cup. Um, So we'll get into that a little bit down the road. But I don't know, man. I'm just... On the one hand, it gives us content. And on the other hand, I'm just kind of tired of it. It's a nice change of pace from what we've been talking about in recent weeks, which has, you know, it, it's depressing in a different and, and less serious way. <laughs> it gives room for more uh, mockery than, than you true. can do tonally in some of the more serious geopolitical things we've been talking about. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is still incredibly serious stuff. And um, before we get into... The SB and the 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 cheating that has resulted in the continued rise of a geopolitical force. I think the 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 quote unquote lighter segment of the podcast is going to be fun too, where we get to talk about Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. Um, I don't know if you have any personal feelings toward Jim Harbaugh, but I'm just not a big fan, and so um, his demise is something that I I do get to get some some joy from in my in my evil kind of way. But first off. It's been a couple weeks. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Thanksgiving is around the corner. Like by the time this is out, like Thanksgiving will be like around a week away for you guys, which is, I don't just the year has just kind of flown by. We're halfway through the NFL season. We're like nearing the halfway point of the soccer season. Napoleon is coming out next week, which, you know, as the movie people we are, is just like the seminal, maybe not the seminal moment of the year, but one of the seminal moments of the year. I think the the one thing I do want to highlight before we get into all, all of our, our sports conspiracies is um, is an entertainment conspiracy of sorts, or perhaps a calling out of an entertainment conspiracy. Um, Christopher Nolan was filmed uh, at some point, I believe in the last week talking about the Blu-ray release of Oppenheimer. And he said, basically, word for word, we are doing the best work that we can to make a beautiful Blu-ray for you so that evil streaming services can't steal it from you. And I, I just like, I just want to say that he's a hero. Um, he, that made my week, and he is doing the work that, uh, that we support on this podcast. If you do not, ha- if you can't hold it in your hand... You don't own it. Yeah. That's just true. It's mm-hmm. true with books. It's true with movies. It's true with anything. The, the, even if you purchase something, like I, I've purchased the digital version of Barbie, and that purchase only exists as long as Apple continues functioning and keeping up iTunes and leaves it up on the internet for me. And if they decided that they wanted to shut down Barbie from their internet service, it would be lost to history and I would lose my money. Mm-hmm. The, and this is, this is, again, there, I don't think there is a conspiracy to, you know, wipe out streaming services of their content yet. But we're coming but there to... Could be. Yeah, there it's, could be. it is coming. The consolidation of content is going to happen. And so... Thanks to thanks to the heroes like Chris, we're going to be okay because we are going to hold that plastic in our hands with pride <laughs> and we are going to say no one, dare I say no one can take this from me. <laughs> yeah, so that's very, that was my, I don't know, my important note of the week um, for the listeners. How about you? No, I like, I like that you mentioned Napoleon. I was thinking Napoleon, not, not a master of espionage as far as I can tell from my reading. Not, not a really good spy. I didn't have a great spy network either, from my understanding of Napoleon. Um, 
He just, you know, he just saw the formations in the battlefield and adjusted in real time, you could say. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, it, was just a di- maybe it was just a different era where it was just a matter of, you know, I can see your men through my telescope and so I don't have to, like, spy. I kind of wish that we were, like, still in that era, you know? Like, pre-surveillance? Well, not even pre-surveillance. I mean, surveillance has always been around. But, like, being able to see your forces through a telescope is kind of cool. Maybe it's a little bit more contained, you know? And it's also just, like... Imagine being able to just like go picnic and watch battles. That would be that would be kind of an interesting. It's an interesting social trend. Well, and like and not to get too serious too quickly, but it also there was an understanding that the battle would be removed from the civilians, mm-hmm. that they would go away from the town out to a field and shoot each other. Which, if you look at certain geopolitical conflicts taking place in the world today, is certainly not the strategy of the terrorists who. Um, like to fight their battles, you know, sometimes in, in the homes and hospitals of the civilians because that, that suits their interests now. It, it was a much yeah. better time. A more civilized era. I think yeah. we should, I definitely think we should completely, you know, de-arm, go back to muskets, and then just, you know, I'll duke it out. I think it's much more entertaining that way. Just two rows of people yep. firing one bullet every two and a half minutes if you're really fast at loading your... Well, they were faster than that. Give them some credit. Come on, Chad. The, the, flint, the flintlock musket? <laughs> then two and a half minutes? I think it's like... You know, I mean I, the one where you had to like light the fuse and watch the fuse oh, like, like well, that's the not, old school. That's not a flintlock. That's a, that's a matchlock. Matchlock musket. Yeah, yeah, yeah so that's the, the one I meant. It does, it does have a fuse. The flintlock um, used a flint. Oh, right. Flint. Like flint. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 yeah. This is the content that you came to this show for. If you listen to this show, you should expect nothing less at this point. <laughs> so. All right. Sports. Um, so, yeah, just let me just we're going to talk about uh, espionage in sports, particularly in the context of Jim Harbaugh. And then we're going to turn our attention to corruption in soccer. So first off, John. Actually, I'll, you, I don't. Yeah, you go ahead and set the scene for the story. I'm, I want to hear from you how you how you, what your read is on the Jim Harbaugh Michigan situation. Okay, I am not an expert on Jim Harbaugh. I know that he is the brother of John Harbaugh, current Baltimore True. Ravens coach. I know that he has perhaps a complicated history with many people who don't like him. I think that you're numbered among them. It seems like, uh, which maybe we can get into because honestly, I don't know enough about him other than his just general demeanor to be able to exactly speak to his reputation. However, essentially the gist of the story is that Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh was suspended for the last three games of the regular season by the Big Ten, uh, I believe last week, after basically being accused by an investigation done by the NCAA uh, and then enacted by the Big Ten that Michigan was stealing signs um, stealing signals from other teams um, to gain an unfair competitive advantage in college football games. Obviously, we've talked about the Houston Astros before. Sign stealing is nothing new to this podcast, but this is a different situation and a different sport. Uh, so we'll get into some of the rules of that. Um, but I mean, this is a very large cultural issue at the moment. One, because of the question of, is this actually that big of a deal? Number one. Number two, did Jim Arbaugh actually have anything to do with it? Because according to the investigation so far, there's no direct links between him and this scouting process. And number three, Harbaugh has filed a request for a restraining order in court against the Big Ten so that he can return to the sidelines. So it's a very spicy situation. Essentially, the basics is that the investigation alleges that Connor Stallions, who formerly up until being suspended by Michigan when this came out, was on the staff of Harbaugh's team and basically bought tickets in his name, according to the Detroit Free Press, to a bunch of different games of Michigan opponents and then send scouts to those games to spy on other teams' signs, whether filming them or not. Um, So I don't know what direction you want to take this, but I think there's a kind of, there's a lot of different questions here. First of all, do you think this is that big of a deal? I think it's a big deal in the sense that he broke a real rule that exists. Right. 
I, I'm not sure if it's a big deal as in like, do I think that the integrity of the game because of, is this rule protecting a real issue or is it a good rule? I, I, I'm not necessarily convinced that it is, but to the extent that he has violated a, a real guideline, it's a big deal. Just like we talk about it all the time with handball. We might disagree with the, the way the handball rule in soccer is written, but when people violate the rule as it is, that's a big deal. Um, and we'll talk about the way different sports treat this, but to me, there's a interesting, um, there's a very interesting kind of mental gymnastics that people go to when trying to determine what is cheating and what is just like fine, like what is public knowledge. Gamesmanship. Um, yeah. yeah, gamesmanship, and it's true in like baseball too, where they couldn't figure out the signs through a TV camera. But if they had a guy sitting in the bleachers with binoculars on and he was looking into the dugout, that would be legal because you're allowed to buy a seat and sit in the outfield and have binoculars in your hand. In football, you're allowed to, I guess, if you are, if you are on the payroll of an opposing team, you're allowed to watch games on TV but not attend them for any reason, mm-hmm. I guess. And maybe in theory, you can see more from sitting in the stand somewhere than you can from being on TV or watching on TV, but I'm not sure if that's true. You can you can pretty well see the sideline when you're watching the game on TV. And so I'm just, again, just continuing to be unsure about the selective nature of these kinds of rules. But to me, the idea that Jim Harbaugh wasn't aware of this is very laughable. Like, it's, it's kind of like when Vladimir Putin is like, I didn't know Yevgeny Prigozhin's plane was going to blow up. Like, that's not linked to me. And it's like, nothing happens that's not linked to you like i know how football coaches are right they are micromanagers to the highest order and when i say that nothing and i mean literally nothing happens in that program without jim harbaugh's approval i mean nothing the 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 types of toilet paper that's ordered for the team probably goes through jim harbaugh's approval there is no detail that he does not have his fingerprints on it in some way, shape, or form, let alone the entire philosophy of the entire scouting department. Right. I mean, there are millions of dollars that flow through a team like Michigan every year, right? There's no question about that, and there's no question that Jim Harbaugh and most college coaches try to find any measure available to them to find a competitive advantage. Now, I think it's important to clarify the rules here a little bit, um, because I didn't up until today, I didn't know these rules even existed in, in the way that they do. Obviously, in baseball, using technology was kind of the, the center of the Astros controversy, right? And was so reprehensible because it basically broke the sport. Um, you just, in a game where you're trying to figure out, you're just your objective is to figure out what pitch the pitcher is going to throw. If you know what pitch is coming, like you almost can't win. Or if you know what pitch is coming, you're going to win. Um, In football, sign stealing, basically looking for the plays of the other team, is allowed. Specifically in college football. Like in college football rules, that's allowed. Um, Similarly, though, you cannot record or use cameras um, on the field to watch for signs. So that's a similar thing. Like you can, with the TV broadcast, obviously it's just publicly available, but you can't be recording from the sidelines or the stadium or anything like that to gain an unfair advantage. And like you said earlier, the big sticking point here is that it's alleged that Michigan was sending scouts to games across the country to steal signs. Um, And the NCAA rule is that you can't send scouts to games you're not playing in. Like, if you're observing signs in a game you're in, that's totally fine. But if you're sending scouts somewhere else, according to them, it's because basically smaller teams don't have the resources to send scouts to bigger stadiums. Or not not to bigger stadiums, but they don't have the resources to send scouts all over the country to spy on other teams, essentially. Um, And so it's not like a level playing field. That, to me, seems like a very strange justification for that rule. I get... Like the NFL has a rule that you can't obviously the whole Spygate thing with Belichick back in the day was that they were filming basically from not allowed locations inside stadiums. But similarly, NFL teams are allowed to film from certain areas are allowed to film 
other teams. So there's kind of the rules are somewhat similar and slightly different, but the main sticking point is just sending scouts. And I just think that's I kind of think that's a weird rule, honestly. Yeah, I think I agree. I'm right there with you. I agree. There's these are tickets that like are publicly available to anyone. Right. And and I, so there's two parts of this. One should should you be able to refuse entrance to someone on a publicly available ticket just because they work for another team? I don't think that makes a lot of sense. It's a publicly available ticket, just like these are publicly available TV broadcasts. Right. If they were like getting like club seats or like seats by the the coaches in the up in the upper like club area, that might be different. But if it's just like a regular stadium seat in college, I don't see why that's an issue. And two, I'm not sure what kind of advantage you're actually seeing from the bleachers that you're not seeing from the TV. Maybe there is something or it, maybe it's just like where where you're looking as opposed to like where the regular TV broadcast is taking you. But I'm not sure that you're getting a much better view of things by being in the 18th row at center field than you are watching the broadcast on TV. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a good rule. Like, I, I think that sending scouts to watch other teams should be allowed. Um, like, for example, I, I go to the women's NCAA uh, basketball tournaments all the time. Um, at, here at the ACC in Greensboro, North Carolina. And usually there's like two games in a row. And I'll watch because after the first team plays, one of the coaches for the winning team will come out and sit and watch the first half of the second game, the person that they're going to play the next day. And I've never thought anything about it. I didn't, it doesn't think it's, it's obviously not an issue in women's college basketball because I, it's happening. I see it all the time. Someone's wearing NC State gear after NC State wins and is watching, you know, the two potential opponents play the next game. And and nobody ever thinks anything about it because that's just how sports works. It's a, it's a seat in a stadium. Everyone's allowed to do that. So I think I'm right there with you. It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, like, if you can watch it on TV, what's the big difference? That's the, that's the big sticking point for me. Obviously, the NFL, this rule doesn't exist because there are scouts everywhere. And you have people breaking down tape literally 24 7 yeah but I, don't I don't think it, i don't think it exists in any professional sport yeah i think a, a resource is obviously like videoing training is another story but that's not what's being alleged here they're just literally going to games um i think it's i think it's really odd um the athletic did a story like a few years ago about just how common like teams have sign stealing specialists on their staff um all the time like a lot of they interviewed a ton of coaches and like 80 to 90 percent of them were like yep we do it we have people on our staff who just sit on the sidelines and have a headset and are like they're trying to use this and so watch for this play right and so they just have to be more aware of not telegraphing what they're doing and i think it's even more of an issue because they obviously don't all have helmets with microphones yeah, and that idea is kind of like the baseball problem too, where sign, like you said, sign stealing is not prohibited. Like, if, if you're the second baseman, or I'm sorry, if, if you hit and you are on second base, and all of a sudden you have, you can watch the catcher, and you can figure out the signs, you're allowed to say anything or do any gestures you want to alert the batter what pitch is coming. At that point, you've stolen the signs, and. Right. And you can do whatever you want. You can jump up and down. You can do anything. You can yell fastball, whatever you want to do. You can do anything. The only prohibiting factor is you can't use TV cameras from the outfield, which I think I think that's a good rule. I think that actually is a good decision. But there's a difference between saying we're going to prohibit this, this, and this way of stealing signs, and we're going to prohibit sign stealing. Sign stealing is going to happen in every sport, and most sports allow it to a certain degree. You know, sometimes... You, there's, a, there's a really, really famous clip of, of Cam Newton playing quarterback against Clay Matthews of the Packers. And he calls out a thing, and then Clay Matthews calls out a thing, calls out a response. And then Cam Newton says, Ah, oh, you've been watching tape, haven't you? Well, watch this. And then changes the play again. And it's just this back and forth that happens all the time because guess what Clay Matthews was doing? He spent all of his time listening to Cam Newton's you know, pre snap calls to steal his signs. And that's, that's just how sports works. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just part of the game. Um, obviously, if you're if you're breaking rules that you know about, 
I do think that's still an issue um, that probably should be punished to at least some degree. Jim Harbaugh seems to be taking up this suspension as some kind of like martyrdom to bear. And I think this may be where your opinion of Jim Harbaugh kind of steps in. He called Michigan America's team saying that they deserve all American fans support for being basically like persecuted underdogs, which, and then they went and beat Penn state um, with him on the sidelines, which is not, well, with him not on the sidelines, excuse me. Um, And it's just, it's just a strange vibe. But I also think that probably a fine would have been the maximum penalty that I would have applied in this scenario. Yeah, that's. I'm not going to make a strong case otherwise. I think part of the Jim Harbaugh experience is that nobody is more important to Jim Harbaugh than Jim Harbaugh. <laughs> and I think he's a pretty overrated coach. Mm. Like, he's he's never won a Super Bowl. He went to one. He lost to his brother. He went to Michigan. He couldn't he couldn't beat Ohio State for like the first six or seven years that he was at Michigan. He was like over six or over seven. He beats them like one time and has gone to one or maybe two, I think one playoff in his what, six or seven, eight years now at Michigan. There's just nothing really important to show for his coaching career. Like he's fine. He's an okay coach. Mm. But the fact, I mean, again, like the martyrdom and like the self-importance that he has. And I think the way that he's kind of overhyped by other people as well is part of why I hate the Jim Harbaugh experience. Just because he has, again, no championships. He struggles to beat his biggest rivals. He struggles in big games. And he's just kind of not in the top tier of NFL coaches when he was an NFL coach. And he's not really in the top tier of college coaches now. And he really never has been, but he talks like one, he's viewed like one, and he's paid like one. That sounds kind of like he's a little bit overrated. Yeah, that's, that's my take. I just want to reemphasize, I mean, we talked about this with the Kelsey brothers this year, but I feel like coaching is even worse because you're even more responsible. Like, I feel like losing a Super Bowl to your brother has to be one of the worst experiences that could ever happen to somebody. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't easy. <laughs> that was that was the Colin Kaepernick Super Bowl. With or, any brotherly so, relationship. Oh, so he won with the Ravens. John did. John won with the Ravens against yeah. Jim Harbaugh with the 49ers with Kaepernick as his quarterback. Yeah. Mm. That's tough. Yeah. Brotherly um, rivalries. John, you mentioned Spygate a little bit. I do want to just kind of say that nobody's ever cheated quite like Bill Belichick. Um, I mean, he's a master. And Tom Brady, may I dare I say? <laughs> um, again, like it's just been, it's been proven that he's the master of this. The mm-hmm. the cameras to steal jet defensive signals is elite stuff, and he's been punished obviously quite severely, as was Tom Brady with Deflate Gate, um, where he was you know didn't have regulation footballs. It, it is what it is. There's no argument with the with the numbers. The numbers are what, yeah. the, what the numbers are. I don't know what you want me to say. But then you pulled a story about cheating that are assigned to them that I had literally never heard of in my entire life. Oh, you never. Oh, I didn't realize you never heard of this. Okay. No. So this is actually a very funny story. So imagine that you're, um, you know, you're at soccer practice in the championship, England's second division of soccer. And, you know, you're just, you're just playing around and you see this just kind of dude in strange clothes, just like prowling around your, uh, your training field. And you're like, what's that guy up to? He seems awfully sketchy. I'm going to call the police on him. The police then arrest said suspect. And guess what? He turns out to be none other than a member of the coaching staff of Marcelo Bielsa's leads. (laughs) This is a real story that happened in 2019. Um, Then uh, coach of Leeds United... Uh, Marcelo Bielsa, famous Argentinian coach, an all um, an all time chat chat fan all, coach, an all time great, a tactical mastermind. Basically, when his essentially a spy was caught outside Frank Lampard's Derby County training, Bielsa just opened up to the media. He was just like, "I'm coming clean. I'm going to say everything that I just did." He then announced 
that he had spy had sent spies to the trainings of every single team in the championship <laughs> over the course of that season. <laughs> was he punished? I honestly don't know that he was. And from what I remember, largely it was because there was no rules against espionage. Amazing. So basically what he said, he just like came out to reporters and he did this whole PowerPoint presentation to all the reporters in this press conference of how detailed, this is all from the guardian, how detailed his preparation for every opponent was. And he was like, I can't, you know, I can't sleep at night knowing that I haven't done the maximum preparation <laughs> for my opponents. And that includes sending literal spies to games. And he was like, he basically played it off and was like, this is a cultural thing. Every team in South America does this. So, like, I think it's totally fine. And the English media was like, mm. and Frank Lampard was like, yeah, all right. Uh, I uh, that's a little weird, but like he just like they just kind of all passed it off. And Marcelo, everyone loves Marcelo. I don't even know if there's like he's like the he was like he's like an old version of Mike McDaniel in terms of the way like people view his quirks. I feel like it's very, like the only very comparison. much so. <laughs> yeah, like like it's just like a lovable and somewhat flawed tactician who breaks the game in certain ways that you never like expect him to. And his teams are never like actually championship winner teams in general, but they still have iconic reputations. And this is one of those ways that he decided to try to break the English game, and he got in trouble for it. But it was funny. As a as a brief side note, has anyone had a better twenty twenty three than Mike McDaniel? Oh, no. I mean, if you're having kids dress up as you for Halloween, I, I think you've you've won, especially if you're like just like a middle aged dude. Like, is is he the best content in sports right now? Is he? He's got to be right. I mean, in terms of consistency, like week in, week out, it, I see him on my Instagram constantly. I would watch any press conference with Mike McDaniel. Like if I knew when they were. And they were being live streamed. I would watch all of them. He's, I only don't because I don't know when they are. But like, yeah, <clears throat> I wish he was the my absolute coach. king of content. He he is the best. He is. I I love Mike. This has been the year in my mind. This is the year that Mike McDaniel <laughs> became an icon to me. <laughs> Just got the year of McDaniel. Like the year the of McDaniel, twenty twenty three. Our year mascot. <laughs> I hope that he wins the Super Bowl, but he's. Not I, I hope he That's does, okay. but I I really don't. Again, it's a similar thing. There's just there's not like the steel that's required, in my opinion, to like actually get over the final the final hump. Yeah, which maybe after last night, I'm starting to think the same thing about Josh Allen. But that's another story for another day. You see, they got some some offensive coordinators fired up out of there. Mm-hmm. They're doing a, a little mini house cleaning. It's what a disaster show. Yeah, it's not looking good. It's 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 bad for them, but. Speaking of disaster shows, yeah, you want to talk about about global soccer? I do. I want to, or do I feel like we need to? I do I feel like kind, it's kind it's of kind our of responsibility. Both. It's a little bit yeah. of both, but like I, I this do is kind important. of want to. Let me let me go back here in time a little bit and set the scene here. And we again, some of this is going to be recast. Some of this is going to be new. Uh, this podcast started in twenty nineteen, I believe, or twenty twenty. 2020, early 2020. Technically 2020. Our yeah. predecessor started in 2019. Yeah. Our, our pilot episode, shall we say. So we we didn't really talk about the 2018 World Cup at the time and no, the way definitely. that it was determined. But Russia had that World Cup under extremely suspect circumstances. And I believe on the same day that Russia 2018 was announced, Qatar 2022 was also announced. I remember under. Under, again, very, very suspect circumstances. There have been Correct. extensive reporting you can go find about literal envelopes of money changing hands to make that happen. And I mean that in the literal sense. Yeah, um, in the most literal way possible. Like, yeah. just money, like in a rap video, you know, with just like dollar bills floating through the air. That's FIFA. <laughs> and then, obviously, very, very excitingly, we, the USA, North America, is hosting the World Cup in 2026. Uh, there'll be a few games in Canada, a few games in Mexico. The majority of the games will be here in the U.S. of A. Very exciting. No corruption Last, involved. 
No, as far as we know. <laughs> yeah. Last month or two months ago, I can't remember, the 2024, or I'm sorry, the 2030 bid Correct. was also announced. And this bid at first seemed exciting, but now seems uh, rather dubious because <laughs> they decided they were going to award the World Cup to Spain, Morocco, and Portugal, which I believe is the first time that three countries from two different continents are co-hosting a tournament together. Obviously, I can't say the first time because the USA, Canada, and Mexico are co-hosting this this one or the one before it. And so that on its own seems strange. But what was really, really strange is that they announced that in addition to Spain, Morocco, and Portugal, three countries from South America, Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay, we're also going to be hosting one game each to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the World Cup that was hosted in Uruguay in, I guess, 1930. 1930. Yeah, That's right. 1930. Um, so, at the face of that, that sounds pretty cool, right? This big global World Cup across the hemispheres, across the globe. We get South America. We get Africa represented. Europe is obviously represented. But now here's the catch. Here's the kicker. Here's where everything clicked together. Mm-hmm. For 2034, FIFA quite conveniently decided that they wanted a new continent that had not hosted any of the last two or three to, to uh, host the 2034 World Cup. And all of a sudden, that rules out North America, that rules out Europe, it rules out Africa. And very conveniently, it rules out South America. Now, John, I'm not very good at geography, but how many continents does that leave? Three. Three. Okay, so we've got so we got Ant- Antarctica, Antarctica, <laughs> which Australia. for my money is not a very strong contender. I would love to host a World Cup in Antarctica, but you know, Australia, who just had a women's World Cup mm-hmm. last this year, along with. Um, New Zealand. New Zealand. And that leaves Asia. Hmm. Interesting. So now we have a, a very, very limited field of, of countries that can bid for this World Cup. Oh, man. Who's going to, I wonder who's going to jump in here and bid from Asia. John, who, who, who might bid? So it turns out, so basically, this was announced in a sudden called, according to the Financial Times, a FIFA Council meeting was held virtually. And that this 2030 plan was announced, and these this rule change was announced, and they said this bid will come from Asia, and someone submitted a bid within the hour, essentially, within the hour, and that that nation was coincidentally Saudi Arabia. Can you can you, can you imagine that? I listeners can't even see the shock on my face right now. But when I saw this announcement, it it blew my mind. I said, yeah. "There's there's no way that Saudi Arabia would want this World Cup." That's a that's a crazy thought, given that they were uh, meeting with Gianni Infantino during the 2022 World Cup and talking about taking the World Cup. Mm. Yeah. So so 12 years after one oil state receives a World Cup, another oil state is. At this point, we can say it's a mere formality. It is not; it has not been officially awarded, but they are the uncontested sole bid. There would it would take heaven and earth being torn asunder, as far as I'm concerned, for this bid to not be awarded to Saudi Arabia. And so, at this point, everyone is just practically assuming that this is a done deal, which it basically is, and we're all just operating under the assumption that this World Cup is going to be in Saudi Arabia. Right. So we need to talk about the Australian bid because this is the actual problem here. And this is where it becomes very clear that dirty deeds were done here. Obviously, the 2030, the arrangement of the 2030 World Cup seems very strange and convenient. Um, That being said, there was still the opportunity. Australia had expressed interest for years in hosting the 2034 World Cup. That was something they wanted to do. They had never hosted one before. The 2023 Women's World Cup was in many ways what they viewed as a dry run for 
eventually hosting the Men's World Cup. And it was a huge success. And it was a huge success. Fans loved it. Um, They were filling stadiums. Obviously, Australia loves its soccer. Um, And so this this was an opportunity that they saw as a way to, you know, host a World Cup down under, which I can't imagine something more fun, honestly. Um, When this was announced... When the, when the FIFA Council announced the rule changes, the catch is that they also announced that all the bidding process for the 2034 World Cup was being shortened basically from the couple years that Australia thought it potentially had to a period of basically three weeks. Um, which, you know, when you're thinking about the logistics of coordinating an entire country to host the largest sports tournament in the world, um, or at least one of, I don't know what the number stats are compared to the Olympics, but I mean, it is one of the two premier sporting events that happens worldwide every four years. Yeah. Let me just jump in here because when you say a bid being shortened like to three weeks, what that means is that's scouting locations. Mm -hmm. That is, that is, um, Pricing out all of the infrastructure changes, new stadiums, renovations, getting price quotes on all of that, where teams are going to stay, food infrastructure, hotel infrastructure for fans. There, there are literally hundreds of components that go into a bid process. That's why it takes years. And, and they, that's, that's what they condensed to a three-week process. Right. And so the only way that you would be able to put a bid together in that amount of time is if... You'd already been told by the organization to expect that timeline to arrive. And obviously, given that that decision, the Saudi Arabia's bid came within an hour of FIFA's decision, that demonstrates, right, that Saudi was very much ready for this decision to come through. Australia basically thought about it and then stepped back and said, we are withdrawing our bid. We'll figure this out at a later time. Um, And... Australian Football Association Chief Executive James Johnson you know, talked to the press about it. He was just like, you know, the numbers were stacked against us, was literally what he said from the beginning, from the minute the Saudis put their bid in. He didn't actively go out to attack the Saudis in any direct way. But, I mean, his, he's made numerous comments about hosting tournaments, future tournaments based on merit, um, which, you know, is about as underhanded of a dig as you can get without openly attacking FIFA. Um, and he just finished a statement. It is what it is. That's what he said, right? Yeah. So Australia will not host the 2034 World Cup um, and we're basically priced out by Saudi, you know, without having inside information, most likely financially turning the heads of not only FIFA's executive leadership, but also the majority of FIFA nations that are now backing the Saudi bid, um, including a number of Asian nations like Japan that immediately came out in support of the Saudi bid in the aftermath of their bid being launched. It's just there's a lot of there's a lot of things to kind of untangle here, but the the simplest the simplest like top layer is that Arab Gulf money increasingly runs the sports world. Um, we talked about their ties to ties of nations like Qatar to terrorism over the last month um, and also all the human rights violations that we've talked about in relation to Saudi Arabia and Qatar over the last couple years, right? And that's that's the, the bedrock, right, for what we're talking about is the fact that in many ways our sports are no longer our own and this World Cup bid is yet another example of that. Yeah, John. I, I know we want to go big picture here in a minute, but I don't want to. I don't want to get lost from a couple other details. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the condensed bidding change. That wasn't the only rule change that FIFA made to allow this bid to happen. They changed the requirement for number of compatible stadiums That's from correct. it used to be seven, and now it's four, which is exactly how many compatible stadiums Saudi Arabia already has right now. So again. Mm-hmm changing it to exactly what is required to meet the Saudi Arabia bid right on time for that bid to already be ready. And the other interesting part too is that it seemed like, and I mentioned, I opened this up by talking about that those three South America countries that were all going to host one game. It seemed like there were several countries in South America that were 
at least going to try to put together either a, an individual or a combined bid for the 2034 World Cup. Argentina was heavily linked to a South America World Cup. And like it was notable at the time that Lionel Messi was endorsing, was an ambassador for the Saudi Arabia bid in, in contrast to bidding as part of his own country, who he just won the World Cup with. Um, rather than support their bid, he was supporting the Saudi Arabia bid as a paid ambassador for them. But again, it's 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 not it's not very much appeasement to offer Argentina and Paraguay and Uruguay one game each of a World Cup, as opposed to giving them an entire World Cup, which is what they wanted. And even though it can sound nice to say, "Hey, we're bringing the centennial back to South America," they're really not. They're bringing a game or three back to each of these countries. And and in so doing, preventing them from actually hosting a standalone tournament, which is what they wanted. The amount of not only financial power, but celebrity power behind the Saudi Arabia bid, as echoed by Lionel Messi and David Beckham and all the players who have gone to the Saudi Pro League, like Cristiano Ronaldo and Neymar, all these people that we've been talking about this year who have fled Europe for this country, they are now, as of, 2020, as of 2034, they will be quite possibly the preeminent soccer powerhouse on the world, just like they're the preeminent golf powerhouse, just like they're becoming a powerhouse of mixed martial arts and Formula One. Like This is quickly becoming a Saudi Arabia-run world, world when it comes to international sports and like again, the only things they don't really have their hands in are the core American sports like football, basketball, baseball, hockey. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's I guess I'm assuming just because it's maybe not in their minds worth the international investment because no one's going to want to watch NFL games in Saudi Arabia. That would be very strange. Um, yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I guess we've had numerous podcasts like this, and each one feels a little bit more defeated. This one to the, li- me, the live one in particular had a particularly defeatist yeah. attitude when when they bought like part of the PGA tour. Like I think what this is to me is sort of the beginning of a new era. Like the defeat is over of like oh we're fighting for our sports and we're now we're in an era where Mohammed bin Salman owns or at least has a tremendous like a controlling stake in terms of the influence he's wielding in a huge amount of the sports we enjoy. They're trying to do tennis too. Um, And I think it's just, it's strange because soccer is such a global sport, right? That you'd think that the collective voices of the world would drown out the voices of one region. But as in all things, right, money talks. And I think what's, what's just, and it's not surprising at all what's going on because we knew that FIFA was in their pocket already. It's just surprising to me that there's been so little fuss about it, about this World Cup bid. Um, You know, there's been articles that have been published. Obviously, people have talked about it. But, But FIFA's decision has just been accepted because it was so blatant. They didn't even try to hide it. There was no, you know... Packets of money changing hands. There was no, you know, under the table, like, ooh, I wonder what happened. FIFA was just like, we are partnering with Saudi Arabia. Here you go. Right on the in the open. And I think that's the point where we're at. Like, Mohammed bin Salman, in an interview, I believe it was relatively recently with Brett Baer on Fox News live in English, basically was like, yeah, I love sports watching. This is my favorite project. He just came out and said it. You know, everyone's like, watch out. Saudi Arabia is trying to sports wash us. And he's like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? You know, like that's he realizes the the power and the authority he has in sports now just by spending money. And I think we can talk about the effects that that will have on our sports in the long term. But I think maybe the starting point for me is like, what do you even think their goal is here? Like, it's very strange how much money they're willing to invest in this. Saudi Arabia's goal? Yeah. An equal seat at the table of culture as China and the United States? Yeah. And, and India? You know, whether it's movies, whether it's social media companies, whatever it is, like, 
there is political power, there is economic power, and then there's cultural power. Saudi Arabia is already one of the 10 or 15 economic powers because of their natural resources. They're not a top five political power, but they're allied to many political powers. They, They are a significant player, although not one of the truly great super nations, super militaries. And then there's cultural power. There's Hollywood. There's Bollywood. There's TikTok owned by China. There, there are countries who turn the needle of culture and conversation. And sports is one of those linchpins along right. with movies and social media and entertainment and other things. The way Britain still controls so much of the way the stage is viewed and how America controls movies and you know, all these things. Sports is one of those things. And if Saudi Arabia can exert their influence over sports, then they have an equal seat at the table of the cultural conversation of our planet. Right. And that's what they want. And money is no object to them. They, they, can, they have made it clear that they can spend unlimited money mm-hmm. to achieve that goal. $900 and, million dollars spent in, this, in the Saudi league to bring players in over this last transfer window. Yeah, they. It's just not an issue. They want to yeah. be. They want to be in the conversation, and they're going to be if they're not already there. I I think part of the defeatism is that there are so little. It seems to me like there are so few avenues of resistance anymore. Like, I don't know what other countries, even if they had the moral clarity to dispute this claim, can do. They could, I guess, not send their teams to the World Cup and boycott. But nobody did that with Qatar, not not the U.S., not Germany, not any of the quote-unquote Western nations that have claimed to have moral concerns when it comes to human rights abuses or gay rights or other things. None of them boycotted Qatar. I don't expect any of them to boycott Saudi Arabia. That would be a significant statement, but I'd have to see it before I believe it. But outside of that, like... Can any country exert enough influence on FIFA or pressure on FIFA to change what they want to do? I don't think there is any pressure more important than the money that they're getting. Mm -hmm. And so I guess part of the defeatism is that it seems like we've run out of avenues of resistance other than just to talk about it. It seems like if the U.S. or if Germany or England wanted to try to stop this, it seems like it's too late. And we either have to decide if we are going to choose to live in a world that is equally allied with Saudi Arabia as it is with everyone else, or if we're just going to remove ourselves from culture. But, I mean, you and I still watch Qatar. We still gave them the TV ratings. People Mm -hmm. went. Everybody woke up at odd hours to be part of it. All the teams went. They... it happened. We all decided to participate, and now we have to live with the results, and it's going to happen again in, whatever, 11 years. And we're going to have to decide again if we're going to get up at 3 in the morning and give Fox or whoever it is our eyes so that they can prove to Saudi Arabia and to FIFA that they've had yet another successful Middle Eastern World Cup sponsored by terrorism. Right. I mean, that's just like an objective fact, Right. Mohammed bin Salman is the man directly behind not only the war in Yemen, but also the dismembering of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, um, the execution of numerous, um, you know, civilians in Saudi Arabia for ridiculous things, including um, gay rights and speaking out against the government and all kinds of things. Um, they just don't care. Um, they've had links to Al Qaeda in the past. This is the Saudi Arabian regime. Like this is not like a question. It's not a joke. It's not like conjecture. Saudi Arabia is a tenuous ally of the U.S. because Saudi Arabia is opposed to Iran, and mm-hmm. therefore maintains the balance of power in the Middle East. And therefore, the U.S. and the Western world, to a degree, need Saudi Arabia, which is why, and not to get too far into geopolitics again, but it's just the reality. Like, Saudi Arabia has carved out its place in the Middle East because it 
knows that it holds a crucial role in Western strategy as long as it toes the line between extremism and rationality. So they are basically given a free reign to kind of, you know, as long as they're not doing super bad stuff, the West kind of has to turn a blind eye because what's the alternative, right? Right. Um, and so I think that's why they're even given the seat of the table to begin with, right? They're allowed to do business with us, obviously, because of oil. And so, you know, the PIF um, invests money in Uber, right? And the people who try to argue that this is not a big deal, I think just try to say, well, I mean, do you not use Ubers because you don't like the Saudi regime? And like, I think that's a valid comparison to a degree. But I think what really bothers me and what bothers people who care about this issue is that sports aren't, by nature, we don't want sports to be a commodity. Mm-hmm. Like the more sports are commodified, the less personal they feel and the more shallow they feel and the less meaningful they are. Like sports aren't just another product on a screen. We, to a degree, you know, identify with our teams right they're they're they are a part of our identity and you know the more closely connected to our community they are especially in somewhere like europe where teams don't ever move um for hundreds of years like there's a real there's a real meaning to that and i think what we're what we're getting is sports are are commodified and then taken over as commodities by saudi arabia increasingly is just the feeling that this the soul of sports is gradually being sucked away. It's hard to identify with a team that, you know, is just directly owned by someone like that. And I just, I don't know how we come back from that. Right. No, nobody makes being a fan of Uber part of their life identity. Right. It, it, it is a different relationship. Sports matter because, because they become part of how a person who loves a sport or a team identifies themselves you know when you introduce yourself you talk about who you are what you do and what your interests are mm-hmm. and nobody says hi I'm, I'm chad i work for wisdom international and i like riding ubers <laughs> but they do say i love soccer or i love right. tennis i it, it is a passion and not just a a possession and i do i i share all of your feelings about this I wonder if anything can be done, if if not to exert pressure to detach these ties, then is there is there any avenue in which cultural transformation can work two ways? In which as Saudi Arabia becomes normalized in the world, maybe Saudi Arabia's culture becomes more normalized to the West? It seems unlikely, but maybe not impossible that, you know, women will be allowed into these games in 2034 and these stadiums mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that there might be ways in which that pressure can be exerted two ways It'd be a way to take a small win out of what is an otherwise bad experience um i'm not hopeful that you know people who are homosexual will be able to be there and express themselves in a way that is safe just like they really weren't in qatar although qatar said that they would be it didn't seem that way Nobody seemed to have a really great experience at the World Cup in Qatar in general. Um, but And Saudi Arabia obviously has a better infrastructure. They're bigger. They have more resources than even Qatar does. So For sure. I, I do expect this to be a pretty flashy and cool-looking World Cup. It probably will. But will there be any sort of meaningful change in that country in the next 11 years that will make me more hopeful? Again, I'm I'm just grasping at even the idea of hope in this situation. Um and I don't, I don't feel like there really is any, um, and I don't like, I don't like leaving a conversation on that note. But I mean, what else is there to say? Yeah, I mean, like, progressively over the last five years, we've just had worse and worse news at every turn regarding this issue, and I don't think there's an there's an answer for the top level of professional sports. I think your answer can be. I'm not going to participate in the top level of sports and participate in lower division sports that are not, you know, involving Saudi money. If that's your choice, you know, like 
you can do that. I don't think that will change Saudi's influence on professional sports or the numbers that professional sports will do because in the end it majority of people don't care. And like I say that and you know, like I don't know if even I would stop watching necessarily. Um so like I'm not like just saying like on my high horse over here being like, oh no, why does everyone not boycotting? Like like we both said earlier, like we, we both watched the twenty twenty two World Cup. But it's just sort of like what avenues are you are you left with when the sport's being drowned out? And I don't know. I mean I guess like you know, they can't ever take away like actual sports. Like the reality of going and playing soccer with your friends. The the definition of like the essence of just the game itself can't ever be owned by anybody because it is a grassroots thing. That's what makes sports special, right? But I think the the way we consume sports will increasingly be like this. And I think it's true even for sports not involving the Saudis right now. You see commoditization in so many different ways um, in a way that does take away from from the essence of the game. And I don't know. It was interesting. Barney Rone, who's a writer for the guardian wrote a very good piece. I thought um, about this and about how prone we are in all areas of life to see conspiracies and everything these days. And he was talking about, you know, how soccer fans in particular always want to see conspiracies and refereeing and in the way leagues operate and, the way FIFA operates. And he was like, you know, essentially maybe we're all really actually justified in this. Like it's to a degree can be so harmful when every refereeing decision is being analyzed by people who are like, you, you, you're bought out by a different team's ownership, you know, but when things are this blatant, right? Like, of course people are going to question that. And like, what do you do? You you can't even call it a conspiracy anymore. It's just, it's not exactly. hidden. It's not it's a secret. There, you know? And so, like, of course you're going to question the small things when the big things are predetermined by the organizations that are funneling money right. from the if same the CIA, people who own Newcastle United. Right. If the CIA come out and say, yeah, actually, we did kill John F. Kennedy, that's not a conspiracy anymore. That's just that's just the reality. And that's, I mean, we're basically at the point where FIFA has stopped even pretending to hide it. Right. And I, obviously, I don't believe in the JFK conspiracy, but yeah, that's just, just like, to clarify, yeah. <laughs> there comes a point where conspiracy is the fact that it is not admitted to. And now we're just admitting to it. Right. Right. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, I guess for me, the choice left before us as a podcast and as sports fans is that we can either vocally share our dissent and then ultimately capitulate to our evil overlords or we can give up on our passion talk about two bad choices right and yeah again like you said i'm not going to come out here and say i'm definitely not watching the 2034 world cup because i'm not committing to that right now i i might feel that way but i didn't feel that way in 2022 i'm not committing i'm not going to commit to that today i don't know but the fact that we're having to sit here on this podcast for years now, for two, three years, and struggle with our own moral ability to participate in our passions and increasingly becoming overwhelmed with the sense that this is now an irreversible reality of life that has no hope of progress is just not a very fun feeling to be having on a Tuesday night in November. <laughs> no, and I mean, like, we've come full, cir- full circle, right? Talking about evil overlords. Like, movies are in the same spot. Like, we're, we're seeing a battle for the soul of entertainment, not to be too dramatic. But, like, it, that's what it is, right? You have... Right. You Will have Tim constant- Cook and Jeff Bezos tell you what you can watch? Right. Like, is that the world we want to live in? And those are not as bad as people as Saudi Arabia. I'm not saying... yeah, We're not yeah, making no, a moral but, equivalence, like, but... But should Bob Iger and Jeff Bezos decide what I want to watch versus Mohammed bin Salman? Like, these are the people who are in positions increasingly where they're monopolizing the world of entertainment. Right. It's just out in the open. No one's hiding it. They're just like, yep, 
getting rid of that, censoring that. Uh, you can't do that in your stadium. Don't watch that. It's just like it's a constant stream of craziness. And, yeah. you know, I'm glad for filmmakers like Christopher Nolan that are fighting back in the ways that they can. But, like, in the sports world, you don't – there's no independence like a creative like Nolan, right? You don't have the but ability to separate yourself. Even Nolan even let Nolan. Asian countries censor his art. Right. They changed, they changed his movie. And some – I mean – they obviously there's an argument about whether there should be that kind of stuff in movies. That's a different conversation. But like even he, the the purist that we're talking about sent his movie off to India and China and let them change it because he right. wanted their money. Yeah. I mean, you say it with Barbie, right? Whether you have the, yeah. with the, the, the South China sea mapped out as part of China uh-huh. on a completely unnecessary, arbitrary world map, literally just so they could get, I mean, China to approve it. Yeah. The capitulation by Hollywood, by American Hollywood to China has been a decades long process in the making. We talked about how China is just making movies now. Like they're making mainstream Hollywood movies. We talked about well, yeah, this. We, with we capitulated. We capitulated. And then they were like, actually, we're making our own movies. Forget about you, <laughs> which is yeah. really funny. But I mean, it, it is in many ways the same economic conundrum, which obviously we've talked about with the NBA. And the NBA just eventually was kicked out by China because they were mad, um, which is right. a different approach because China doesn't need the NBA um, no. to do anything right. right um but yeah i mean we didn't even mention china in this conversation at all in in many ways china is perhaps the expert at sports washing in the entertainment world um and i think we're, we're seeing this everywhere in, in in a globally connected world where our economy is interdependent on bad countries our entertainment is shaped by bad countries that's a reality um and that's just kind of the worst. Yeah. Is there any hope? Is there any hope here, John? Or are we just ending on this note? Uh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's about right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a, it's a bad time. Support independent filmmakers. Um, support your local teams that are not funded by China and the Saudi Arabian government. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 I, I, I don't have any other solutions. <laughs> Read a book. <laughs> don't let the government take your books. <laughs> Protect your physical media. <laughs> yeah. I think it all comes back to whether your physical media is playing soccer on a field with your friends or reading a book or collecting Blu-rays. Preserve the world around you and don't get sucked in by the digital hordes. That was good. I like. I like that. I like where we. I like where we ended up. My my bit of optimism is that before many many years before I have to deal with my feelings about the twenty thirty four World Cup, we will get to have a World Cup here, That's and true. I will feel no moral reservations whatsoever as I travel around this country with my friends and family, watching soccer. I feel here. like we need to pl- we need to plan like very intentionally on attending a game together. I think that oh. needs to be a priority. Oh yes. Yeah, I don't think we've One, talked about that. One hundred percent. That needs to be on the list. Yeah, I, I it is going. I mean, again, as a as a soccer fan of four or five years now, this is going to be a, an awesome experience, and I I don't have to worry about any issues, and I can just go and just appreciate the fact that this country is getting a really really awesome experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm looking forward to it. So that's that's my note of optimism is that we are only now three years away, two and a half years away mm-hmm. from this 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 amazing experience that we're going to have as a country, as friends and as family. It's going to be awesome. You know, setting aside the fact that Saudi Arabia tries to accuse us of human rights violations <laughs> in comparison with its own as a way to, <laughs> to hide its own record. That's another story for another day. We're going to have fun because that's not true. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's a great time that's a, that's a that's a different podcast that we could that would be another hour and a half <laughs> long podcast about the uh the whataboutism of uh human rights abuses mm, it's a great it's a great time in the world we're having fun 
Um, we're doing our thing. We are doing our best, guys. Um, I hope you found this informative. I, I was informative for me even reading about it um, and kind of looking at the details and just thinking about, I don't know. I mean, the course of the last decade of sports has been so strange. Um, like, I mean, one of my earliest memories was the bid going to Qatar and Russia. Like, my earliest soccer memories, specifically. I remember the 2010 World Cup, and I remember those bids being announced in 2010 and not really understanding what that meant at the time because um, I'm pretty sure I got all my news from the FIFA.com website, and so I was just, like, you know, receiving propaganda from FIFA. The, the, real, the real journalism. <laughs> right, the real journalism. I didn't know where else to go as a 10-year-old. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh you know, like getting all your NFL news from Roger Goodell straight from him, you know. Um, and then everything happened over the next decade. And it was like, wow, what a moment I witnessed in that live stream. Yeah. Anything else for the podcast today? Mm, go see Napoleon. I think that's, that's, our, that's our exciting thing for the week. And, and see, don't see the Marvels. Don't see the Marvels. I will go see the holdovers this week. That'll be fun. We'll see what I think yeah. about it. Um, Movie season is upon us, and it's been a very good year for movies. We thought about that recently, and we decided universally that it, it's been a good time. David Fincher's Full a killer. Length. Delightful. Very good. Yep. Full-length Napoleon pod? I mean, I think we should hold off on the full-length Napoleon pod until we have watched the director's cut released on Apple+, Plus, and then we will do a full-length Napoleon pod. <laughs> Great. I'm looking forward to it. Because <laughs> it's going to be, be four hours. And we'll have to like mark it as this is a different sort of podcast. But if you are interested, I mean, we did we, a full length Oppenheimer pod and Barbie pod. So yeah, I we kind of, I guess we kind of, did, we kind of did. Yeah. It was um, just objectively. It was, that was all we talked that's about. That's true. Yeah. You're right. I forget <laughs> that. That also feels like a long time ago. I don't know why that feels like ago. so long yep. ago. Um, yeah. The killer is a good movie. I really like it. And it's on Netflix. I think that's one a recommendation. The, one of the good uses of the streaming service is to just give awesome directors on limited money to just do their thing that's a wonderful that's a wonderful thing is it truly independent not exactly but in a sense you're always getting money from somewhere and they are given a lot of creative license so i think that's a good thing more than they were given by the traditional studios that's exactly so so you know what all right complain yeah you're right you're right let's get out of here john we've we've uh we've kind of gone off the rails here for the last 10 (laughs) and uh I feel our focus slipping, and I think the best thing to do would just be to get on out of here. Um, If you have any strong feelings about how you're going to handle the 2034 World Cup, whether you're going to go in person or watch on TV or completely boycott it or anywhere in between, please let us know. Obviously, that's something that we're still trying to work out on our own and as a podcast. And so um, as we're still many years away, it it, it is worth considering how we're going to handle this. So if you have a strong feeling, we would love to hear it. Um, additionally, if you have any thoughts about the podcast or any topics we can discuss in the future, we would love to hear that as well. All the ways to reach out to us are on our social media accounts. Also, you can subscribe to the podcast. And until next week, we hope that you all continue to be well and be safe. And we'll talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys.